Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Let's get the show going, boys. Welcome to the show. I'm Osha Ginsberg. This is James Matheson. How are you tonight, my friend? Good, man. We're back. We're back to delve deeper into the minutiae of Australian history. Beautiful Australian history. And and I know we did an episode earlier about the 1992 Brisbane Olympics, but if we're doing a show, we're doing a podcast about the unsung heroes of Australian history, then this particular man we're talking about today, I think he doesn't get enough credit, I personally feel. Let me ask you this question, Jim. What do a plum pudding tin, a table leg, and a few pairs of kerosene-soaked underpants have to do with the Olympic Games. Uh, kerosene-soaked underpants. Yeah. I mean, the only time you soak kerosene is if you're going to make a like a Molotov cocktail, I reckon, or something of that sort. A table leg. I've got no idea, Osh. Well, in in 1956, as you recall. You weren't there, neither was I. But in 1956, for the first time ever. As you recall, this thing that you weren't alive for (laughs) and have no knowledge of. My parents were. I think my mum went to the 1956 Olympic Games. They came to Melbourne, the first time the Olympics had ever been in the Southern Hemisphere. And there's a tradition at the Olympics that we hold very, very reverently. We both reflected on the Barcelona moment with the flaming arrow, with the lighting of the Olympic torch. All right. It's this beautiful moment. And the relay, it's an incredible moment for us all to kind of be around, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, you think of the Sydney Olympic torch relay. Of course, Kathy Freeman lit the flame. Incredible moment. So many people still remember exactly where they were when it happened. But the torch relay is uh, an amazing event where, you know, most people in the local community get to hold it, get to run with it. I mean, if you. Talk to enough people in any small town, you'll meet several people who got to carry the torch. And a lot of them, do you get to keep the torch? You do. I remember around the time of the Sydney Olympics, I held more than a few because people would take them to the pub with them and go, check this out. Look what happened to me today. I'm sure I've met more than a couple little hometown heroes that got them in the pool room. Of their house, yeah, yeah. That's me. And the, yeah, it's with me with the mayor at the time. Yeah, no, that's me with the the local school principal. Yeah, the head of the Rotary Club. He also got one. <laughs> the torch relay. The torch was lit in Athens, in Greece, for this one, and it started on the east coast of Australia, from Cairns all the way down through to Melbourne. To qualify, you had to do two things. Well, three really. You had to be able to run a mile in under six minutes, which at the time, four-minute mile was about the the edge of human capacity. 
right? So six minutes, it's, it's still pretty fast. But in North Queensland, seven because it's hotter. Is that right? You got a new and far North Queensland discount. Yeah, you got a far North Queensland discount. And the other thing you had to be able to do to carry the Olympic torch in 1956 was not have a vagina. Oh, right. Excuse me. Speedy, athletic, yeah. and man. <laughs> yes. 100% man. Yep. In 56, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A few women did end up carrying it across far north Queensland. They must have just kind of not had the numbers. But, yeah, the torch made its way all the way down uh, the east coast and it was supposed to arrive at night around about half past seven in Sydney. Now, this is a time before TikTok. Television was barely, barely there. It was literally fuck all to do at night time. So if the Olympic torch is coming to town. Hey, kids, jump in the Kingswood. We're going to check this out. And uh, so this is, it, it hits Sydney on its way to Melbourne. On its way to Melbourne. 30,000 people showed up out front of Town Hall, out front of Sydney Town Hall to see it. Wow. Which at the time is a fucking heap of people. That's crazy. I love that, you know, we, we're so jaded these days about what, you know. I mean, I don't think, like, if it was going down my street, the Olympic torch was going down my street. I don't think I'd even stick my head out to have a look. <laughs> like now. <laughs> now. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty I'm pretty I'm pretty over everything. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember in the seventies when we lived in Adelaide. Yeah. Like I think the Queen was visiting. And I rem- I vividly remember like waiting all fucking day. And because I'm so little, I'm just staring at the backs of people's knees. Right, and it's cold, rainy Adelaide day, and then mm. all this—you could hear this commotion coming, and then I just got pushed to the front. I remember like looking between the, like the bicycle racks, like the crowd barriers, and a black car just went vroom, and Mum said, "Okay, we're going home now." And that was it. I feel like I did that with the Pope <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> like I can't remember how I was, but I'm pretty sure. Pope John Paul II came he to did. Australia. 1986, he did. You would have been about seven. 86. So, yeah, I'm seven. I, I had a very similar experience, you know, looking at the backs of people, waiting forever. Pope Bill goes by. I was like, oh, is that it? <laughs> oh, great. Awesome. Can we get an ice cream? 30,000 people waiting, waiting around for the Olympic torch to arrive at Sydney Town Hall. And this, James Matheson, is where we meet our hero, Barry Larkin. Barry Larkin was a veterinary student from Sydney Uni, and Barry and eight of his mates, they were not fucking having this. They were just not happy about the the reverence being shown to this ritual, mainly because of the origins of the torch relay. Right. I have a quote here. It was spoken about of the, the, the first games where the torch relay showed up. Here I quote. The sportive... Nightly battle awakens the best human characteristics. It doesn't separate, but unites the combatants in understanding and respect. It also helps connect the countries in the spirit of peace. That's why the Olympic flame should never die. I love it. It's the eternal flame. Yep. Just like the Bengals. Yep. What, but hang on, what's wrong with that? Higher, faster, better. These yep. are sort of the ideals that the games were built on. 
Do you want to know who said that? I'll give you a clue. It was 1936. Uh, uh, yeah, right. So Berlin Olympics. Yeah, problematic. <laughs> Small, angry German man. Adolf Hitler. Those words <sighs> were spoken by Adolf Hitler. According to the US Holocaust Memorial Museum, the torture lay perfectly suited the Nazi propagandists and it was designed to embolden the kind of things they were already doing because they were using torch lit parades and they was running around with torches and burning things and they used these rallies to attract Germans and especially the Hitler the youth to the to the Nazi movement and a sports uh what was he like a he was like a like a sports psychologist or, or something he was a, a professor at a university a bloke by the name of Carl Diem he devised the idea for the torch relay at the uh, 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin uh, and it was organized by the Nazi party under the direct guidance of Joseph Goebbels. The Olympic torch yeah. is racist? <laughs> uh, well, it was then ratified by the International Olympic Committee, <laughs> so they were on board. Oh, my God. The Nazis ruin everything, you know. Yeah. They really do. Didn't they ruin the Volkswagen? Like, isn't they did. the Volkswagen Fanta? They ruined Fanta. <laughs> What's interesting about the Berlin torch relay is like we we work in telly, right? And um, so, for example, or film, if you've got to do a shoot, you need to go out and, and see the place first. It's called a recce, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of go to lie of the land and oh, what time's the sun come up here? What time's the sun go down there? Here's good parking, no good parking. Where can we put the toilet block? That sort of thing. When you think about how World War II ended up, these are the countries that the German torch relay ran through. It went from Greece into Bulgaria. Yugoslavia, Hungary, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and then ending in Germany. So it could have been a torch relay, but it also could have been a bit of a recce for the fact that they would all be occupied by the Nazis less than three years it later. does seem to be a pattern there. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing? Oh, we're just... Um, we're just... Well, Doing a torch, yeah. We we just it's about um, the games. So heaps of dudes taking photos. Yeah. What are those blueprints you got? There? Oh, nothing. We just want to plan the route we're taking. Um, that's all. Is this bridge? Yeah. Do you reckon this bridge could hold a tank? <laughs> it's a. Uh, that's what we refer to one of our, our wrestlers, uh, <laughs> Hans. The dunk. The, the dunk. <laughs> not an actual. Obviously, not an actual tank. No. Hide the tanks. (laughs) No, 1956 is only 11 years after- End of the war. The end of the war in the Pacific. So it's fair to say that a couple of people were not happy with the reverence surrounding this thing, least of all our man Barry Larkin, who in his right hand held aloft a sawn-off table leg with a plum pudding tin nailed into it, painted with silver paint, and inside the tin dipped in kerosene, playing the majestic role of the Olympic flame that had travelled all the way from Greece with three pairs of flaming underpants. Mm. So Barry obviously positions himself in the crowd somewhere, waiting to the side of the road. They all do. Well, Barry wasn't even supposed to commit the prank, all right, because they had a guy dressed up in the, the singlet and the shorts. You know, it's the before, you know, the what are those suits called that they run in now? Like the really skin tight lycra. Mm, yeah. People went, what's the fastest way to run? I oh, know, baggy white shorts 
and a single. So it's sort of chariot to fire, uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Herb Elliot sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This bloke was all dressed in that, ready to go. But when he ran, he's apparently he swung. He swung? Swang? He swang. He swung the torch too much when he ran, right? He was a swanger. He swung. <laughs> and the flaming underpants fell onto the floor. Uh, it's a problem. They're in the middle of the crowd, right? So there's people everywhere. Now there's underpants on fire at everybody's feet. This guy, he freaks out and run away. So one of the other guys grabbed the torch, put the flaming underpants back in it, handed it to Barry, kicked him in the ass and said, I quote, run, you bastard. And Barry's not ready for this, I imagine. He's in a pair of slacks, collar shirt. Mm. And off he goes, flaming undies. We've talked on this show about looking the part, right? About as long as you look the part and look like you belong, people will believe yeah, you can it. get away with anything. One of Barry's mates was in the Reserve Air Force, which at the time, post-war, it's not uncommon for a country to keep an army reserve or you know, national service on board. So one of Barry's mates is in Reserve Air Force. So he's in his uniform and he's riding his motorbike next to Barry. So people see someone running, holding a torch with a person in uniform. So they're like- Military escort. Escort. Clearly the guy. It's clearly him. Sure, he's not. He's wearing dress shoes. Wasn't expecting that. But look, I've never seen a torch relay live before. That's probably what- It's not at night. It is at night. It's weird, but it's exciting. I'm here. I've waited for hours. Staring at the backs of people's knees. <laughs> Finally, something's happening. And uh, and how far did Barry get? That what happened is once, once they saw Barry and the torch and the motorbike, that's enough for people. According to Barry, this is a quote from Barry directly. The thing was that the crowd then closed around me. Now the people thought- I really was the torchbearer. Before long, I had a couple of police escorts. So the cops are waiting, right? They look around and go, well, the crowd's making the right kind of noise. Well, there's a bloke running. Well, there's someone already in a motorbike. This is him, boys. And off he went. And he, he, he keeps running. He, said, uh, um, he says, uh, I felt very strange because I knew I was carrying a fake torch. The only thing I'd think about was what to do when I got there. The footage is amazing. It's all black and white and there's, you know, I don't know what it was like now. People go, Osher Ginsburg, Canberra. But back then, I think you had to talk through your nose to um, be a broadcaster because the, the newsreel footage is very much, and the crown goes wild. It's, you know. <laughs> As they do, of course. So Barry's got a head of steam now. He's got a police escort. Yep. He's got a throng of people. Yep. A, a motorcycle running next to him. The crowds are parting, Jim. The crowds are part. He's like Moses. Yeah, I was going to say the other guy, Charlton Heston. He's Charlton Hestoning it. You know, the crowds are parting. He's charging through the crowd, and the people just go, "Wow!" Flames. <laughs> He's ten minutes early. Uh. So. If you're a Lord Mayor in the 50s, you don't just get about in a suit, do you? Oh, no, you're, you're in the whole regalia, you know? You've got the robes, you've got the big um, Flavor Flav necklace around you. Yeah, you've got, probably got an orb, you know, maybe maybe orbing it up. A scepter? A scepter? A scepter, of course. So Pat Hill, the mayor, he's got none of the regalia going. He's like, oh, it's heavy. The Flavor Flav thing's quite heavy, so oh, I'll wait till the last minute. Pat, Pat, the torch is coming. Shit. He runs out the front. He's just in a suit. He doesn't have any of the pageantry on. He's got none of the gear on. He runs out, and you think well, he would have had everything, you know, cleaned and pressed and ready to go, but he's run out without it. Barry ch jumps up the podium, hands it to Pat. Pat's like, this is brilliant, 
and Pat's holding the torch and he starts into his prepared speech and Barry just goes, Riffer, turns around, walks back down the stairs of Town Hall, the town, very Town Hall steps that you and I know. And at this point, the man that organised the entire torch relay, Marcus Marsden, he's standing on the podium next to Pat, the Lord Mayor, and he kind of just wanders over to him and he says, brilliantly, that's not the real torch. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you fucking mean? It's a stick and it's on fire and it's here. Don't ruin this for me. So Barry just made a swift exit because now the torch is there. All the focus is on the Lord Mayor. He's holding a thing. He's doing a speech. Barry melts into the crowd. And I quote, I just turned around. I walked back down the steps through the crowd onto a tram back to college. Apparently, he went back to a pub in Newtown in Sydney and he didn't pay for a beer all night. Amazing. Just slipped off like Mad Max at the end of Fury Road. Just whoosh. He went to bed. Like, uh, but word got around campus pretty quickly that he was a star attraction. Barry said, and I quote, the next morning at breakfast, the rector of the college walked up to me and said, well done, son. <laughs> like, and he had an exam that morning. So we walked into the big great hall and there's hundreds and hundreds of desks, everyone getting ready for you know the exam. And word had gotten out. Had a standing O. Whole place, whole place rose to their feet. And this kind of got me thinking, you know, when I was, kind of reading up about this story, they were protesting the reverence shown to this ritual, which was created by the Nazis and then adopted by the IOC. I was just thinking that if you want to create something that's really bonkers and you never want anyone to question it, if you pack enough ritual and solemnity and reverence and ceremony around it, no one will ever challenge you. Oh, yeah. That's that's what pageantry is all about, these displays of over-the-top excess that really are only done by those that, you know, don't really have that much power because they've got to show that they are above or a level above or at top of the hierarchy. And once everyone buys into that idea, you know, you don't really have to be that powerful because the, the power is in the idea of their role or of their position. I mean, that look at the royal family right now. It's exactly what's going on. People are like, wait, why do we care about this bullshit again? And there's so much pomp and ceremony and regalia and tradition that it's just become ingrained. And you you don't think about it because it becomes this sacred cow. That you can't touch. And, yeah, I remember watching the when Wills and Kate got married. It's like, hang on, she's Kate. Mm. She's wearing a pretty dress. She walks into a room full of people. It's a big room. Someone says some words and she walks out and she's a princess. Did something happen to her? No. It's like one hour and two minutes later, but now she's a princess. Mm. And we all treat her differently from now on. It's kind of weird. Well, and no one, and if you say that, if you question it, you run the risk of being an outlier. So everyone, I mean, that that's not happening as much now. Everyone is starting to see through the mm. illusion that is any sort of monarchy. You know, it's on its last legs everywhere around the world, right? But up until not that long ago, it was a given that it was uh, an institution that we needed to bow down to and give our respect to because everybody mm. else was doing it. You mentioned the power imbalance and if there's if you 
don't have a lot of power if you put enough reverence and pomp and to the particular like a perfect example is showing up on a boat and putting a flag in a country and say well this is mine now and the other person's like well we live here he goes yeah but i've got a flag mm. that classic eddie Izzard line but have you got a flag i've got a flag the clever use of flags that's right i'm quite familiar with ceremony because i preside over one every week you know <laughs> Uh, my ceremony involves a whispery counting of flowers. Everyone in the room is in, invested in it. It is, you know, but when you think about it, it's a, it's a symbolic, dramatic way to d- demonstrate on television where someone's emotions lie. But, yeah, it's just giving a flower to somebody. Yeah. Oh, although it is my favourite ceremony on television, <laughs> you know. Of all the ceremonies. Of all the ceremonies, that's probably my favourite. I can't think of that many others, but it's it's- I, I love that it's still called a ceremony. Well, there's also the ceremony, like, I was talking to Audrey about this, the national anthem at a, at a sporting game. Mm, that's a beauty. That's an absolute beauty. Try not standing up or not giving that the reverence that it's meant to give. It's a song. It's just a song. And it's not even a song that's been our song for that long. Like, I am older than how long that song has been our song. Mm. Maybe the flag is just a bit of fabric with a design on it. Yeah. The person that designed it won a competition. And it's got the flag of another country on it. It's just a piece of fabric. Yeah. These symbols and these rituals, you know, they I think they serve a purpose. I think they're meant to have some sort of communal sense of, of who we are as a nation. But, I mean, even that is just an idea. Yeah. The idea of a, a country is just a, a set of stories that we have consensually decided to believe. I was raised Catholic, not because I asked to be. It just happened. I was about 11 when I went, mm, hang on, something's up here. You know, there's a, there's a man in a dress at the front of the big room here saying bad things will happen to me if I masturbate. I don't know because he just said before that I was created in the image of God. So hang on, if I'm created in his image, surely he'd do this thing too. So, and did bad things happen to you? I was riddled with guilt and I believed that all the bad things that did happen to me were definitely related to my masturbation. Turns out they weren't. But later in life, when you you know when you go to weddings, friends' weddings, and sometimes I've I've been to weddings in churches, I've been to weddings in cathedrals, I've been to weddings in backyards. To be honest, Jim, I find the weddings in backyards to be the most spiritually moving and bonding and connecting. But I've been to weddings at very orthodox kind of things. And there's a bloke with a beard in a dress swinging a thing full of incense and it's all like, whoa, it's like a Game of Thrones episode. And, you know, it's all that shit is packed around it. So when they say you will love and obey this man, you know, you're not supposed to question that part. If you are coming from within one of those places and you operate out in the rest of the world, you're kind of coming with a sense of power of like, no, but I'm protected by this thing so I can do these things. The stories that we tell ourselves about, you know, identity, you know, are really powerful. And a lot of those come from religion and from nationalism. And, yeah, to question them and to unpack them takes a little bit of self evaluation which people aren't always prepared to do but yeah i i i don't know i think this feels like a generation coming through that's calling bullshit on a lot of these institutional beliefs that we sort of grew up with 
pretty entrenched around being Australian or being part of a religion or being a bloke. You know, I, I feel like there's a generation coming through that, that's slowly unshackling themselves from these things and it is a it is a threat to those those power structures when they go, Oh shit, well what's our purpose or how do we um how do we control and direct people if you know they don't respect this inferred authority mm. we have. I think that's the thing that I've had cause to find myself in some of those big Pentecostal churches for work purposes and I've observed them and it gave me the feeling of like being at a festival like Splendor or Big Day Out or something and happening upon a stage with a band you've never really heard of and you're standing in a crowd of 5,000 people who sing every word and are in tears and you're like, well, clearly this means a lot to you. But I don't understand it. And I, that was definitely my experience. Of like, whoa, y'all are really into this. You really get it. Look, for me, that's fine if that's the thing that gets you through the night, if that's the thing that coheses your family together and helps you overcome difficulties. That's ripper, and I'm cool with that. But I do start to worry when if you are within that structure and then you start pushing those ideals and values outwards through the structure of our secular government, <laughs> that's when I start to fret. Oh, you're in for a surprise. I'm going to tell you who the Prime Minister is. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he is a, a true believer. He's a, a diehard Pentecostal. I mean, this if you're a little bit worried about those of committed faith, being in charge of the levers of power, then uh, I've got news for you. You you uh, you might be <laughs> under that sort of rule as we speak. I mean, as an aside, I think our current prime minister might be the most committed to the idea of divine prophecy of any leader we've ever had. What, like an Indiana Jones kind of prophecy? Uh, no, in the idea that, you know, you, you have a higher power that you can pray to and he will give you the things that you ask for. I mean, I remember he spoke at the Hillsong have a annual conference and, you know, 15,000 people come and it's an extraordinary event if you've ever seen it. Is that the one that Justin Bieber shows up to? Uh, I think at some stage he was part of it. Yeah, yeah. They have it out at um, the Olympic Centre and bands play and preachers speak and it's it's filled with the Holy Spirit from my understanding, and I remember Skoma, maybe a few months after he was elected, went to it and spoke and, and thanked everyone specifically for praying for this to happen and fasting for this to happen, and that's all come true. But Tony Abbott was a pretty devout Catholic, and I think John Howe was quite religious. I think Gillard was a you know agnostic slash atheist, and, and Kevin wasn't very devout, but... This is the first time I think you've had someone who truly believes they are there because of the will of God. And that I, I'm not overstating that. Like, that, they're his own words. I don't even know how we got here, but if you were concerned about the people who have a, a very strong belief system directing policy in this country, well, you, we might already be there. I mean, not that he does overtly. I mean, when the marriage equality plebiscite was voted by 60% of the population in favour, yes. He abstained. He was like, no, my 
this is different to what my church teaches me. So even though, no, but at the same time, it's the first time that you got an inkling of, yeah, maybe his view of the world and ergo how he shapes policy is shaped by the belief in a, in a supernatural being. Oh, boy. Does that mean that what we're seeing and what we've seen over the last few weeks, this idea that I don't have to answer to any of you? <laughs> I mean, I think that the only trouble with having hardcore evangelicals in positions of extreme power when it comes to climate change is that they don't actually believe, they, they cannot believe the idea that God would allow man to have an impact on the planet that would imperil it. And so they are opposed to the idea that climate change could actually be as big a problem as it is because it runs counter to their belief system that there is a, a benevolent Lord that has created all life and would let the actions of man put that in danger. You can't vocalise that. You can't be overt about that and be in a position of power in this country. Like you would be absolutely thrown to the wolves. And so you have to be sophisticated in how you articulate that. And so they use language around, oh, we're, we're meeting our targets, we're doing everything we can. But the unspoken part for those evangelicals in power is nothing that bad's ever going to happen because it's, it's in God's hands, you know, and God would never let that happen to the earth. It would be so sweet to know someone's got this. 100%. Someone's got this. It would be incredible. I'd be able to sleep so well. Mm -hmm. Someone's got this. In fact, you know who's got this? The person that gave me everything I have yep. has got this. And they've given me all this, every, like to go, oh, I'll be fine. I'm, I don't have to do anything because it's going to all be taken care of because I've said a couple of words to myself every morning and night and I've, you know, put some water on my face and I've eaten a cracker and I'm fine. Yeah. What a weight off your shoulders it would be. And I kind of, it, when I was at my sickest, you know, I kind of, I really wished for that kind of freedom of responsibility. I don't know. If about you, but it's something that occupies, you know, a large percentage of my thinking time is like, what is this all about? What are we doing here? What is our place in all of this? What's the purpose behind any of it? And like, I think it's fair to say, you know, pretty big proportion of my brain when I'm just sort of in my own thoughts is dedicated to that. But imagine you didn't have that. Imagine if that was locked away. You had those answers. That'd be super comforting and a really great relief. I think that's part of the appeal of religion as well. It's like, oh, you know, those concerns you've got, those worries, those questions about purpose and about creation and about what happens when you die, we've got the answer. We've got that sorted. So don't you worry about it. You can focus on something else. Oh, imagine that. It sounds wonderful. You would know, like you had problems with alcohol and you had to do a 12-step program. Isn't yeah. one of those steps like you've got to submit to a higher power? Yeah, absolutely. I'm still an alcoholic. I'm 11 years sober now, and the higher power is a is a big part of 12 step. But I could never get around to my higher power being a god of anything. But what I got taught within that program is that your higher power literally can be anything. It just has to be bigger than you. It's the idea is you need to be humble before something. 
because alcoholism is a disease of selfishness and self-centeredness and, you know, I am the most important thing in the world and everything has to revolve around me. So at first my higher power was the ocean because I've been punished by the ocean. I'd been nearly killed by the ocean. I knew that I had to respect it and honour it and, you know, so that's the thing that I had. But like now my higher power is just the the absolute fundamental laws of physics that hold the nature together. Like this morning at work, Jim, I was eating an apple and I turned to Carla, who does my hair and makeup, who I've known for a million years, and I said, I'm eating, I'm eating atmospheric carbon right now. She's like, what? I'm like, isn't that just fucking amazing though? I breathed out carbon, an apple tree took that carbon, made it into an apple, and now I'm eating it again. Like that is in fucking incredible to me. And so I am- I'm humble before that, and I'm when I think of a higher power, and I and I think about a higher power is going to work this out. That higher power for me is all about physics. Always comes to wants to come to a balance. Physics always wants to come to equilibrium, and and just believe that equilibrium is what everything is searching for. But the best way to explain the higher power thing is I heard a story about a bloke that I think his dad was a preacher, and there was violence and whatever, and he couldn't ever come anywhere near having a god as his higher power, and his sponsor just said. Just fucking pick something bigger than you, all right? And he's a farmer, so he picked his tractor because without his tractor, he couldn't feed his family, he couldn't look after his farm, he couldn't provide, he couldn't, and he had to look after it and he had to respect it and have reverence to it. So this this guy stayed sober by praying to his tractor. <laughs> In an infinite cosmos yeah. where there is more planets and stars and there are grains of sand that life somehow emerged from rna to dna into protein chains whatever this guy prayed to a fucking tractor kept him sober i mean i'd rather be an alcoholic to be honest (laughs) if my options are you gotta live a life of misery and drink yourself to death or pray to a tractor. Mate, that's not <laughs> that's an easy decision for me. I'm in acceptance that some things are beyond my control. I'm in an acceptance of the size of my actual ability to influence the world and things I worry about, and that's painful. But I think being with that pain is too much for some. Being with the pain of I can't control that 15 million people in Bangladesh live half a metre above the high tide mark. 15 million people who have no fucking way of protecting themselves from sea level rise. I can't control. I have nothing. There's nothing that I can do that can change that. And that's horrible and painful and heartbreaking. But that horrible pain and heartbreak, I'm willing to be with. But I guess for some people, it's it's too much and they need to know that someone else has got it. Mm. Someone else has got it. Yeah, I th- I feel like it's very easy to reject the idea of God when you uh, turn your back on religion or you've been really raised in in a religious tradition mm-hmm. but i just feel like they're so they're so distinctly different the, the, a lot of the modern and traditional churches have moved away from what god is what you're talking about is if you remove the religious aspect like the miracle of you being able to eat an apple and that apple seed, like the apple seed itself, you put that in the ground. That is an apple tree. That has all the information yeah. to become yeah. an apple tree. Like an acorn seed has all the information it needs to become 
a giant 120-year-old oak tree in that acorn. Yeah. That's crazy. It's incredible. So I don't need to invent a man in a beard in the clouds to be frightened of. Like that in itself, that is enough to be reverent before Yeah, for me. Because that for you is your God. The word is, has become so tainted by the pictures that religion has foisted upon us that we're not prepared to, to, to do that. I mean, when you meditate or when you're out in the ocean, like, and that feeling of stillness that you have inside of you, you know, would you ever say, oh, that's, that is my connection with God or the divine or the source? I've thought about this a lot because while some people may say they pray for guidance, I think what they're actually doing is there's no research behind this. I'm just positing this because this is what's happened in my experience. I'm just trying to get my subconscious to come up with the, uh, the answer that I already know out of the information I've already ingested quicker than it otherwise would have. You know, everything I, I need to know about to, to make a decision, I already know when I'm asked the question. I just have to usually do a lot of reading and I'm talking to other people before things can crystallize in my mind. And I now just write it in my book. I, I have a I do writing every morning and I just write down, you know, like when you're ready, you just spit the answer out, will you? And it usually comes like the next day or the next morning after, usually between the first and second coffee. That's when the answer mm. pops out. If I were to believe that that was a divine message, then I'd be like, check it out, man. But I don't. I'm, You know, it's just my subconscious has all the information it needs and it's just popped out. the. It's formulated the ideas while I've slept and it's popped it out. And that's all. That's all it is. The other thing, I know I'm really hung up on this Apple, man. The thing about the Apple story is that I'm a part of it. I'm an inexorable part of it. That Apple tree can't exist without life forms exhaling and I can't exist without the Apple tree respiring. To know that I'm a part of that system and I need that system to live and that system needs me, that we are indeed all one, like, God, i gotta, you got to lie down and think about that shit. Yeah, and also it doesn't, it doesn't really... <laughs> Maybe it only exists once it's perceived as well, you know, to go to another level. Like once you pick up the apple or you look at the apple, your sensations bring it into being. If no one exists, the, the apple is still there, but your perception of it is what brings it into being. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to, you sound like you're listening to my Sam Harris app. <laughs> he talks about that kind of stuff. I love um, it. Hey, um, so how long until we go to Washington where they've just legalized psilocybin? <laughs> we could do a whole other ep on that because, like, that's totally my wheelhouse. There's few things that could be more powerful for humanity on the trajectory that we're on than the responsible, controlled usage of plant medicine, honestly. The reality is that, People joke about it and they laugh about it. Oh, look at that. You know, mushrooms got legalized. You know, whoa, that'll be crazy. Last thing we need is politicians, you know, tripping off their heads. Fuck that. That narrative, I think we need to really knock on the head because this sort of stuff done well, done properly, done in the right environment, dissolves boundaries, gets rid of the, the self and the ego to an extent where you can you know, it's truly experience interconnectedness with other people and, and everything around you. And people think it's a fringe issue. People think that the, the legalisation control of psilocybin and compounds like it is a fringe issue. 
but it's not. It's not. It's not, it is not a fringe issue. Like me being able to decide what I do with my own consciousness is as paramount to individual freedom as you know me be able to marry who I want and me being able to have free speech and I honestly believe that like it is my consciousness and who gets to decide the state the police the government fuck off anyway I I can do an hour on that I'm pretty passionate about politics and, and my family and just unlocking the deeper mysteries within but outside of those things like trying to make progress on the research and responsible use of these medicines is is right up there for me brother i don't know how we got i don't know how we got there starting off with flaming undies i think how we got there is that that is a perfect example of why i wanted to start a podcast with you because we could uh, start a conversation about a pair of flaming underpants and end up with the idea that what do you mean it would be a bad thing to give all these politicians in, in charge of, of, of weapons and policy that could change billions of lives around the world, a sense of oneness and interconnectedness with all other beings? What do you mean that to be a bad thing? The guy, I guess the guy, what's his name? Barry? Barry? To take us back to Barry. Barry Larkin, mate. Yeah. Sadly, Barry Larkin passed away only a mm. few years ago, James, in 2019. And I found a, I found a, a, a notice in the, in the paper, like in the death notices, of a, a, a vet by the name of Barry Larkin who lived out a, a life as practicing veterinary surgery in the Hills District of Sydney. So I'm, I'm guessing it's the same Barry. He had a beautiful family, uh, survived by heaps of grandkids. Yeah. So Barry's no longer with us. Sometimes people want to do something really great in their life and achieve something extraordinary. But sometimes you just have to do something really outrageous and kind of hilarious and your legacy can be insured. And Barry took the latter route. It wasn't even supposed to be him. And, uh, and who, who would have thought, you know? He certainly wouldn't have thought that 70 years later. Well, that's okay. That's all right. It got us where we needed to go and it allowed us to get to some interesting spaces. I really appreciate it. We salute you, Barry. We sure do. Send us an email if you want. Idleaustralians at gmail.com. I-D-L-E Australians at gmail.com. We're also Australians on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. You're amazing. Good night, Jimmy. See you. Good night, Australia. Buddy. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.